You are no mere mortal. You are divinely designed, deeply loved, fully forgiven, fully alive, sacred person, with a sacred story of grace, a sacred body, and a holy longing for God. You were perfectly designed before the foundation of this world to do great works that give glory to God. And you are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. You're one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and you will live forever in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. May you sing and dance with the joy of a child in the knowledge of God's unending love. That was James Bryan Smith, and this is the Things Above Podcast. My guest today is me. I know that seems a little strange, but um, today's guest on the Things Above Podcast is actually me. Normally, I have guests on the podcasts and I interview them about a book that they have written. But today I'm going to be the guest talking about a book that I have actually written. And this idea came when I was talking with my good friend, Dr. Jeff Bjork. And we were talking about, hey, wouldn't it be interesting um, if we talked about your book? And I thought, yeah, that would be great. Jeff, would you mind being the one who interviews me? And since Jeff was actually very close uh, in the writing of this book, Jeff read early manuscript uh, chapters of the book and was very much connected with me. We had a lot of discussions, so he knows the book well. I thought, yes, that, that would be the way to go. And he has agreed. So let me just say a welcome to my interviewer, Dr. Jeff Bjork. Good morning, Jeff. Thanks, Jim. Good morning, afternoon, whatever time zone we might be in. Uh, I'm I'm happy to do this today, and uh, might be helpful to say that I've actually been privileged to be your friend for about 20 years, over 20 years now. Hard. To That's believe. right. Um, and I've also read the first three books in your Good and Beautiful series, as well as most of your other books. And I might be one of your biggest fans. Wow. Yeah. Well, more than that, I want you to know that seriously, I think this new book just might be about the best in the series, and I believe it's really going to help your readers see themselves mm. more clearly as God sees them. And yeah, as truly good and beautiful. I mean, you use that phrase a lot, but it bears repeating, even with all our imperfections. So I'm glad to talk with you today. Wonderful. Thanks for doing it. So Jeff, you are recently retired, but for how many years were you a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary or School of Psychology? Sure. I taught in the School of Psychology for 30 years, retired in June of 2020. Still very active in in other aspects of life, but uh, that was a really good season. And I'm I'm glad to have opportunities like this to keep on the intellectual discourse part of things. So uh, thanks to my fellow professor, uh, Dr. Jim Smith. (laughs) So, I mean, you, what you did for those 30 years was actually, you were training people for what? I was training, I was training primarily the next generation of clinical psychologists um, uh, who were deeply committed to integrating their Christian faith with what could be uh, used from psychology that glorified God. And that's a filtering yeah. process, but there's much there. And I, uh, I focused as, as also a researcher, uh, did quite a bit of research and published uh, scientific articles about how people's faith can inform their coping and their support, published in journals that at least three people read, um, but still 
hopefully made a contribution there too. Um, but they were good years and glad to see what God has going forward. Well, suffice it to say for anyone listening that this guy is as at the top in terms of understanding the nature of the human person. Um, if ever through the 20 years of friendship, I had a question about psychology, um, therapy, uh, the human person, the way our minds work, I would always go to Jeff and bother him with my many questions because he just is the most learned person I know in this area. So how wonderful, because we're talking about theological anthropology, the fancy way of saying, you know, who is the, what is the human person in light of God? And that's really what the the book is about. Um, I don't necessarily say this is a book about theological anthropology because no one would buy it then, but that is what we're doing in a sense. So I have the person interviewing me is is at the top of the game of that. So with that, I am just going to I'm going to f- just switch roles. I'll be the one, I'll be the interviewee and I'll let you take it from here. Thanks, Jim, and I I'd love to start today by asking how you came to view yourself as good and beautiful because I happen to know you're a pretty humble guy. I think it might also help those listening to hear how you believe we can appreciate ourselves as good and beautiful, you know, without such self-appraisal sliding into narcissism. Yeah, that's a well, deep question right off the bat. Yeah, it is uh, to to say I'm good and beautiful can come across as wow, that person is really full of themselves. But I, I say that on the the basis of who we are as designed by God, and you know, if you go into a Barnes and Noble bookstore, there's a huge section on self transformation, and the books in that section. I've been in that section. I've looked at many of the books in that section all presuppose that we can fix ourselves, that we have the ability to transform ourselves. I don't believe that. I believe that we uh, are transformed by God in Christ. So when I think about me or the reader understanding themselves as, a, as the good and beautiful you that you are, it's because of who we are in the eyes of God, that God has designed us, known us before the foundation of the world, and has brought us into this uh, existence. And so that's where that comes from. The subtitle of the book is really important to me, and it is Discovering the Person Jesus Created You to Be. Mm, yes. And so the emphasis is really on, well, no, in and of myself, I don't want to say, oh, I'm really good and beautiful, aren't I special? But because Christ has created me this way, then I can see the goodness and the beauty in myself and others. Yeah, that's really helpful. I mean, what would you say about possibly maybe some of the confusion coming from the word Proud. I don't know about you, but I was raised as a kid. It's okay to be proud of your dad, proud of a baseball player, proud of the president, but you can't be proud of yourself because it's prideful. And that seemed pretty illogical to me until I realized, well, why don't we just dump the word pride and use the word grateful? Mm. And then I can be grateful that God's made me good and beautiful, grateful that he's made you that way, grateful for each person. What do you think about the idea of thinking of that good and beautiful you in terms of gratitude? Well, I, I really hope that's what happens to the reader who reads the book, is that, they'll, that they will then say, wow, I am desired, I am loved, my body is sacred, all of these things, and say, wow, thank you, God. You're the one who, who designed me this way. So absolutely, that's the hope for the book, is that they would then not just stop and go, oh, what a wonderful person am I, but wow, thank you, God. Well, I'm pretty sure that message is going to come through, especially because shortly after you begin your book, you contrast, you, you make a pretty bleak contrast between the empty secular view of self, and I love your description, an accidental carbon-based life form, 
uh, with the good and beautiful soul that God breathed into each of us at conception. And you suggest that when we merely focus on the self, the soul is neglected. But I think some Christians throughout history, and even today, seem to think that we should focus on spiritual things even to the neglect of our physical selves. So I'm wondering if you might talk a bit about how ignoring caring for oneself, even in the name of serving God more, can also be harmful. Now, in your in your chapter on our sacred bodies, you do address this. I'd love you to expand on it a bit. Here's, here's something you write, quote, we are a soul and at the same time a body. We must avoid dualism. Human beings are unity. The soul is in the body and the body is in the soul. Put simply, we do not have souls. We are souls. We do not have bodies. We are bodies and they are united. Could you say more about this, Jim? For example, how might you address the Christian worker who believes that the body can be neglected in order to focus on spiritual service? Oh, yeah, good, great question, and, and that does happen a fair amount. Yeah, the contrast that I make in the beginning chapter of the book is to say that in the world we live in today, the way we understand the nature of the human person is as a self. And I define that, uh, not well, that's Tolstoy you quoted about the, the accidental carbon-based life form. He said that clear back in the late 19th century, that that was where the world was moving in terms of understanding ourselves from a secular perspective. Tolstoy himself was, was a Christian, but, but he saw that's where the world is moving. And, uh, and he's, he was quite a prophet because that is how we see ourselves now. If I say that I'm a spiritual being, then I am, am making a claim about the nature of reality, that there's a spiritual dimension to me, that I have a soul that there is this, this dimension of the human person that is a spiritual dimension. And frankly, in our world today, the assumption is that reality is secular, and that includes me, uh, my body, your, you and your body. Right. So we, we've, we've reduced the human person to an isolated individual who's in competition with other people in order to survive, to compete with each other. When we th begin thinking of ourselves as an embodied soul, now we begin to see the sacredness of each person. And I, I believe that it's no accident that in the 20th century, that's when we saw the worst atrocities uh, between human beings. I mean, genocides, uh, th these things happened in the 20th century. I think it coincides with viewing a person as just a carbon-based life form. I can, I can just extinguish that. It doesn't matter. But when we see ourselves as sacred beings with souls, that changes everything. Now, your, your question about um, neglecting the body. That's another thing too, because in our Christian history, we don't have a great, uh, a great track record when it comes to respecting the body. We tend to think the body's kind of bad. The body's the place where my sins happen, uh, impulses, compulsions, and that sort of thing. My body's not good, but our bodies are not the problem. That isn't where, I mean, we have sin in our bodies, as Paul said, because, because of habit patterns and other things. But uh, our bodies are sacred, and we have to care uh, for the whole person. I think that's really where your question was going. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I mean, I, I guess a, a great example of that would be uh, people who, well, neglect something as simple as sleep because they're, they're busy serving the Lord. And, and how would you help them think about that balance? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I saw that when I was writing The Good and Beautiful God. That's why the first exercise is sleep, because there I was working with these Christians who wanted to live a more committed life with Christ. And I was seeing they're exhausted. And I started asking like, what's you tell me about sleep. And that's when I learned it's a huge, huge problem. And you can't do anything important in the spiritual life if you're exhausted. So our, our bodies are, are crucial. 
and we have to learn to care for them uh, in every aspect. It's sleep, it's rest, it's exercise, it's nutrition. All of those things are very much a part of my life in Christ. That's helpful. Thank you. You know, I, at the risk of going deep again, um, I loved how you talked about the relationship between our bodies and communion. You wrote that every time Christians take communion, they're taking in the body and blood of Jesus. And then you quoted St. Nicholas Cavasilis, who said this, while natural food is changed into him who feeds on it, here it is entirely opposite. The bread of life himself changes those who feed on him and transforms and assimilates them into himself. Wow, that, that sounds amazing and really deep. Could you help us understand that a little better? <laughs> it is, yeah. So we're talking about the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, whatever your tradition uses, but it's when we take in the body and blood of Christ in that sacrament. And yeah, that quote from from St. Nicholas Cabasila, I mean, that's a deep idea. What he's getting at is that just as, you know, if you had pancakes for breakfast, your body's taking those pancakes and assimilating them into, and it's taking the nutrition from that and it's it's using it for energy and all the things that your body wants from what you took in. He flips it. He turns the table on it and says, no, in this case, when we take the body and blood of Christ, they're actually transforming us, which is really a, a, a very deep thought. And I know that some of our listeners have differing views of what happens at communion. I personally believe in a real presence, that, that Christ is present in that sacrament. Uh, and... Um, and so I, I, that's why it's such an important practice for me. Every Sunday we have in, in my church, uh, we have the Lord's Supper, and it's uh, very meaningful to me. So when I think about it in terms of what, where he was getting at, I think, wow, this is a, you know, there's so many elements. I mean, first of all, it is a mystery, let's be honest. And, and, and we've even called it that. The church has been wise enough to say it's one of the mysteries. Communion is a mystery. We don't fully understand what's happening, but I just love that idea that, that uh, Christ is in me and is transforming me. Yeah, thank you. So, okay, uh, let, let me now go up to a more 50,000 foot view for a minute, uh, because your book overall focuses on the idea that every soul has 10 needs and you see them as all good God-given needs. So can you explain how it's good to be needy <laughs> and how you believe God can satisfy those needs? Yeah, because we, we look at someone and we say, well, that person's very needy, and that's usually not a compliment. Right. Um, but, but if you, th I mean, think about it, we just talked about the body. So uh, our bodies, we know, need certain macronutrients. We need, we need protein, fat, carbohydrates. Our bodies need minerals like iron, and we need vitamins like vitamin D. When there's a deficiency, uh, we suffer from it. So we, we don't look at our bodies and say, you needy body, how, do, how dare you need to have vitamin D or what are vitamin K, pick your vitamin. Um, that, it's just, it's the nature of reality. And I believe that our souls are factory loaded with 10 needs. And God designed us to have these longings for our soul and that we find ultimate contentment, peace, joy, the things that we, we look for when we have these needs met. And um, so I come at it from the perspective that, that God actually made us with these needs and that God is also the one who can fulfill those needs. And in fact, is the only person who can fulfill those needs. So I'm wondering if you could, can you name the 10 needs? 
Yeah, well, uh, we don't have to name all 10, but I can. <laughs> that immediately lets your readers have a chance of thinking about, okay, what are what's the overarching uh, needs that this book is going to describe? I think it might pique yeah. their interest. Yeah, and, and, and it's, well, interesting, too, you asked that question, because I then also had to decide as an author, like, which order to put these needs in. And not that there's necessarily a hierarchy, because we need all of them. But, um, you know, I started out with saying that we need to be desired. Uh, that the soul has a deep need to feel as if someone is excited about our existence, that is out to be with us because they love us. And so the desire to be desired is a need of our soul. And then the next chapter is on being loved, that uh, we have a need to be loved. And um, Dallas Willard would say that's that's the the longing to know that there's somebody who's for us, someone someone or someones a group of people, perhaps our circle of origin, our family, are, are they for us? And that's what love is, is to will the good of another person. So we're built in with that. And then the third is that we have a, a, a need for the transcendent. We need something bigger. We, we were designed to attach, I believe, in, to the spiritual dimension, and that is to God ultimately. But all of us long for things to be other than they are. And anything that humans accomplishment, whether it's Figuring out how to make the wheel to flying to going to the moon is a transcendent longing. So that's a, a deep longing inside of us is to to go beyond the more than, as Adrian von Kamp says, and that's the longing for the more than. Mm -hmm. And then because we know that we have failed in our lives, uh, we have this thing we call guilt, which can be a very good thing to feel guilty for the things that we've done. But to carry guilt is is hard, and so there's a need to to be forgiven, and uh, and Christ fulfills that need, and then there's a need to be alive, to feel like I'm a part of an adventure, um, that there's deadness in my soul until I can come alive, and we become alive in Christ, mm. and then there's a longing to be good people. Everybody wants to be good, uh, and I believe Christ fulfills that in in sh showing us that in Christ we are holy. Um, that we have been sanctified, set apart for something that's profound. And then we have an, a need for our story to make sense, which is the ninth chapter of the book, that our stories would matter. We, ne we need to feel like we, our lives matter and count for something. And then we have the need to be a, a part of something that where we make a difference, which is your calling or your vocation, which is the 10th chapter. And then the final chapter deals with the, the soul's longing for uh, the eternal that uh, something in us knows that this life here on earth is not the end, but we long for uh, an eternal life with God. So those are the needs of the soul, and uh, every one of those are met in Christ. Thank you for that. I, I, I just think that, that you've, you've built a really good scaffolding or infrastructure for, for thinking about our relationship with God and with each other at the same time. And I just, I think to put it in, in, in terms of needs, um, I'm with you. Our, back to that self, the self is supposed to have no needs, be totally self-sufficient. You think of some of the stupid expressions we've had, like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Sure, I can defy gravity. And it's just, it's ridiculous, but that we were made to have needs that could be only met by God. I just, I really appreciate that. And I actually love that you have an entire chapter on us being made for God and another on the beautiful truth that God actually desires us. Now, in the chapter on God's desire for us, Jim, I was struck by two things you said in particular. First, you say this, quote, 
I feel the pull to find my validation, my desirability in the world I live in every day. But I have learned that it can never be found there. I've come to believe that attempting to establish my worth in this world is not only being unfaithful to God, but is actually being disloyal to myself. And then a bit later, you say this, quote, our identity is given by God. We do not have to search for significance. Significance has found us. And living then becomes a process of discovering and living into that significance. Wow, these are all beautiful words, Jim. I wonder if you could go even deeper regarding how seeking validation from the world is not only being unfaithful to God, but is being disloyal to ourselves and how we don't have to seek validation because you say significance has found us. Well, we that's a need, right? To to feel that we matter. And, the, and we use that word validation. And... Um, you know, I, I, I heard a joke once, you know, validation is for parking tickets. Uh, there, there, there's, there's this need that we have that we would be validated. And how am I going to find that? Well, the things of this world is, is the way that most people try to achieve that. Uh, accomplishments, successes, money, fame. And we just see over and over how, how that consistently fails. Even the people that we look at and say, well, they have achieved everything you can possibly imagine. And then they say, no, actually I'm completely empty. Uh, I don't, I don't have, I have this void inside that I can't fill because um, the things of this world can't fill that void. And also because uh, the things of this world are very precarious. So you may say, well, I just won the championship. Yeah. But what about next year? Who's going to win it then? Uh, The world that we live in is, is fickle and very hard to establish any kind of validation or worth on the basis of anything that we might do. And it's just a waste of time. So what I like to say is, is your existence itself is your validation. Your mm. existence itself is, is a sign that, that there is a divine being who said, I want you to be, and, and you are. And your existence then is the establishment of your sacred worth. And then of course we have the Christ event that that uh, Jesus becoming human and ev- everything about the, I like to call it the Christ event, because that includes the incarnation and the birth, his whole life, yeah. his, his human life, his teaching, uh, the way he interacted with people, and then obviously the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and eventually the return. But everything about the Christ event is screaming to us, you are loved. I, I love the line in uh, O Holy Night, my favorite Christmas song, that says, and he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And he appeared. That's the incarnation. That the, You look at the manger and say, wow, I am of sacred worth. That's where that comes from. It's not something I can try to establish on my own. It's been bestowed upon me by the Trinity. Mm. That's very helpful. Yeah, your idea about people seeking validation. I mean, when you think about it, we have so many examples of people who got it all, and and the list is very depressing. Let's see. uh, Elvis Presley, uh, Michael Jackson, John Belushi, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. They're all gone. It wasn't enough. And I I remember hearing that uh, a number of people were interviewed about what was the most fulfilling part of your life looking back. John Lennon said it was uh, playing little bars before the Beatles was discovered. Mm. Uh, And uh, um, Henry Fonda said it was when he was eating beans out of a can playing Summerstock Theater in Martha's Vineyard before he was discovered. 
Mm. So it's fascinating how the world just keeps pushing us to think you're going to be something if you keep accomplishing. And here you're telling us that God's saying, no, it's what I've accomplished that makes you so valuable. I, I, I love that. No, I mean, I, it's interesting you say that because I'm literally just uh, this weekend, I was listening to Matthew Perry's um, audio book, his, his latest memoir. You know, he was the big star, on one of the stars of Friends, very popular TV show. And, uh, you know, he, he should have died. And he's very, he opens the book just saying, you know, the way with his uh, addictions and uh, abuse, uh, he pretty much should have died. And, uh, and he tells the story exactly what you just were saying, Jeff. He, he recounts his own version of achieving it all. At one point, all of the actors on Friends were receiving a million dollars per episode. Right. And, 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 and so famous, you know, everybody in the world knows them. And he was still saying it wasn't enough. It didn't, it didn't provide what he was, and he talks about those deep needs. And I, as I listen to the book, I just want to go, please read The Good and Beautiful You. Isn't yes. That terrible of Yes. <laughs> if only we could go back in time and give it to Rockefeller, who was asked, how much is enough money? And he said a little more. Or to right. Forbes, who said that he who dies with the most toys wins. And apparently he's still winning because I believe he's still dead. <laughs> now, <laughs> you know, Jim, you also write of each of us having a God-ordained story, as you said. And, and I love how you describe this story as something we have rather than something we merely are. And frankly, this passage was practically poetic. I wonder, might you read it to us? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, and that's from chapter nine. And by the way, I think, I think it's my favorite chapter. I'm not, you're probably not supposed to have a favorite chapter because it's like your kids, like yeah, you, you shouldn't have a favorite kid. But uh, chapter nine is, is really important to me. And I think in many ways, the whole book is is sort of leaning towards chapter nine, because that's where I talk about that you have a sacred story. But yeah, here's what I write. You're not merely a story. You are an unceasing spiritual being, a divinely designed gift from God. You're not a story, but you have a story, and that story matters. If you neither ultimize nor minimize your story, you can see the story in the right light. And the only person who can tell your story and mine is Jesus. And his word to us goes something like this. You were uniquely incarnated into a specific family, culture, and time. God planned it for you. You cannot change this. This has a large influence on you, but it does not define or limit you. It has not only happened to you, it has happened for you. The sooner you embrace this dimension of who you are, the sooner you can become who you were created to be. This is your story. Wow. I have to tell you, when I hear these words, Jim, I feel hopeful. Can you share how God has helped you understand your own story in this light and how we might better understand our own stories? Yeah. And, and I think, Jeff, you'll appreciate this as a person who uh, is a therapist yourself. I mean, what was really helpful for me was that I actually did some counseling myself, and I had never done that in my whole life. But a few years back now, uh, I, I decided to do that. And I, I, I found in the process of therapy where I was able to like tell my story, even the, the darker parts of it, uh, the brokenness, the sadness. You know, I mean, you know our story, Jeff, we lost a child. And yes. It was just, just a lot of dark stuff and seasons in life that were challenging. But in the process of just bringing that to the light and talking about it, I began to see uh, what I said there in that quote, that it, it didn't, 
it, it just didn't happen to me, but it happened for me. And if I can begin to see that the things in my life, even the painful ones, are things that God can use to transform who I am, um, I can begin to look at them not as something like, oh, I don't want to think about these sad parts of my life, but to say, no, that's a part of my story. It isn't my whole story, and I'm not that story. I'm bigger than the story, but that story is real, and I don't want to minimize it or ultimize it and make it everything, but I want to see it in the right light. And so for me, that that was really helpful to to go through that. I mean, Jeff, you've you've been a therapist, and so you've seen that up. I, w- I wonder if you would might maybe just uh, talk a bit about that from the perspective of one who's been the person who's been the therapist. Well, I, I guess, Jim, what I would say is that, first of all, I think you're, you're spot on with what you've said. I think that if we view our stories as not even just a fabric, but more like a, like, like a polymer matrix in which we're trapped, we become perpetual victims, we become despair, we become hopeless because life just happens to me. If on the other hand, we, we grab the illusion of the self and say, I'm the captain of my fate and the pilot of my destiny, and I'm, I'm saying the, the poem wrong, but that person's also dead, um, it's, it's illusory. Uh, mortality shows that each of us has those needs. But what I love is that you've put it in the context of helping people realize, if I can figure out my story as kind of the fabric into which God is weaving the tapestry of my life, that gives me both a sense of God's faithful relationship with me, but also my agency in the midst of it. And I think that um, both of those are important. And kind of when Paul says, you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it's God who works in you, both happening at the same time. But I think that um, for people to take an honest look at their stories um, can help them understand the, the fabric into which their life is woven. And I think what people usually do when they come to therapy, especially if it's like couples therapy or family therapy, they're looking for the scapegoat. They're looking for whose fault it is. Now, Jim, I'll tell you, um, when I do couples therapy, I've often told the couple, look, we're, we're going to throw the word blame out because there's only two logical candidates to blame for your problems. And as I say this, I think the husband's going, oh, you've met her parents. And the wife <laughs> is saying, oh, you've met his parents. And then I say, the two candidates are Adam and Eve. They're the only ones that didn't have parents. And so the point is not that we can't benefit from learning how things my dad did or didn't do, things my mom did or didn't do, my brother, the kids at school, not to say they have no bearing. They are part of the fabric, but they can give me insight that helps me then work and partner with God to better continue in his tapestry that is my life. I I hope that's not too metaphorical. Oh, that's really good. Thank you for that. Well, thank you. And my next my next question, you'll have to forgive me. It's it's hard for me to ask it without talking for a minute. So so bear with me. And it's okay. it's in one of I think one of your most important chapters too. And that's on being forgiven. Now I appreciated your explaining, first of all, that we don't need to confess every one of our sins legalistically in order for God to forgive us, as though if we forget to confess one, it's gonna show up on a balanced due sheet when we approach heaven's gates. Uh, Instead, you rightly pointed to the finality of the cross and the fact that Jesus has already paid our balances completely so God can rightly see us as spotless and pure. I I often tell people when Jesus was dying on the cross, he didn't say, well, I'll die for this person unless they do that. (laughs) 
God knew everything and all of it's paid for. It's so good that you point this out. But then you know that some people have tried to contradict you by pointing to 1 John 1, 9, which says if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But they imply that if we don't confess, he won't forgive. Now, I just, I just agree with you that this is a distorted view of Scripture. But I wonder what you think about us sincerely saying we're sorry to God and asking for forgiveness in the sense of expressing our remorse for grieving the Holy Spirit. You know, for me, I find it healing to think of God responding to my confession by saying, yes, of course I accept your apology. Now let me help you do better the next time. All that to say, what would you say about the idea that it can be healing to know that God has accepted my apology and will accept any apologies so that I am not only forgiven in the sense of being saved, but I'm forgiven in the sense that I'm no longer grieving the Holy Spirit and my loving two-way fellowship with God is fully restored? Well, I I'm, I'm fully agree with that. I mean, I, I, I actually uh, agree 100% with that. And that's, and I'm going to speak actually from experience because in one sense, we're talking about a kind of a doctrine or on a, on a theological level, trying to understand this issue of God and forgiveness. Certainly what I'm dealing with in the chapter is, uh, and I've seen this in my own life, I've seen it pastorally, where people think, wow, if I just, if, I, if there's some unconfessed sin, uh, and I've had people, even ministers, say that to me in my life. Like, if you have some unconfessed sin in your life, Jim, then that is God is holding that against you. Uh, it's just a misunderstanding of the nature of the Trinity, uh, of the nature of of the sacrifice of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, when I talk about the finality of the cross, it is to to say, look, it is finished. God is not dealing with me on on the basis of my sins, as if. I sin, I, and if I don't can get it confessed just right, he's out of. No, that that just puts that puts it all on me, and that's that can't be the arrangement that God has. But then, when you start to live into the finality of the cross, which I think is where your question is so good, and that is okay. So, what about tomorrow? So, I believe in the finality of the cross. That's I, I fully believe that that teaching, and I've lived with it for gosh, twenty five, thirty years now. So, but then, how do I live into that? Well, the reality is I'm in a relationship with God. So when I blow it, like, and I know what I do, when, when that happens, I do talk to God about it. And I do confess, which is to attest that I have sinned. So that's just a normal part of a, of a good relationship. I say that to my wife, if I've blown it or to my coworkers or my children, if I've made, you, you own up to that. And so that's been in, in my life with God. I'll say, wow, God, that was, a, that was a disaster. What happened there? So I love that line of yours. Yes, of course, I accept your apology. Now let me help you do better next time. Absolutely. That's, that's exactly how it works out for me in real life. Uh, I don't confess in order to get forgiven. I confess because I want to strengthen that relationship and enable God to be at work in my life. I really appreciate that as a perspective. I, I, I might use slightly different words see if this fits for you too. I think a lot of people are worried that I've got to keep confessing my sins in order for forgiveness to make sure that I'm back being saved versus Mm. saying, I confess my sins and ask for forgiveness to simply restore fellowship. In other words, it's like if if, if, if a teenage son says his father's an idiot, he doesn't immediately ask for the car keys because his fellowship is not in a great place, but he doesn't stop being his son. And mm. it has nothing to do with that. And yet the, will you accept my apology? Will you, will you forgive that? Take that isn't saying, will you save me again? That's done. But will is saying, 
I want to not be grieving you. I want us to be in a good place fellowship wise. Does that fit for you or is that a little yeah. bit off to one side? No, no, that's, that's, that is spot on. That is spot on. And I, I just, I feel like that's the heart of, of God, that, that God wants to be in relationship and fellowship. If I've turned, if I've done something, uh, it is only right that I would acknowledge that, that uh, I've done something that was wrong or sinful. Uh, and and you, you bring that up in the course of the relationship. Um, I just, I've personally, Jeff, found so much freedom in the finality of the cross, because that wasn't what I was taught right. in my early life as a Christian. And and I lived in this sort of unbearable fear, you know, that I, I had to just get them all confessed and with with tears. One one person even said, if you don't have tears over your sin, then they're not forgiven. I was like, oh, wow, I got to cry every time too. <laughs> so, oh, dear. Oh, I mean, dear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so to, to, the finality of the cross has been very healing for me. But as, as you're pointing out, immediately then people go, but what about, but what about? And Again, it's relationship. It's the relationship with the Father. And um, and I think you've described it really well. Well, I appreciate that. And and that helps clarify it for me, too. Thank you. Um, now, now, please forgive me for quoting your book so much, but um, you're quotable. So here's another gem I found. You wrote this, quote, What I have learned is that Jesus did not come to help me serve God. Jesus did not call me to ministry to serve him. Jesus called me into ministry so that he could minister to others through me. Most of the time, this means I need to get out of the way. Now, I have to tell you, for me, this is a powerful and freeing statement. I'm reminded of uh, my dear friend, theologian Ray Anderson, who used to say, Jesus did not serve the world on behalf of the Father. Jesus served the Father on behalf of the world. But I wonder if you could help us understand more about what you mean when you say that you need to get out of the way. How is that part of our being good and beautiful? Yeah, I, well, you know, I, I, I preached yesterday, just for example. And when I, when I approach preaching, which is an act of ministry, when I do that, I, I want to be asking the question, Lord, what is it that I can say to these people for you? And, and I, I heard someone say, when, when someone has preached a sermon, what, what you want to hear is not, wow, he's a good preacher. What do you want to hear? What, what you want to hear people say is, wow, he knows an amazing God. Mm. And so I, I, I think about that as I, like I enter that. into the pulpit is to say, you know, my hope is that at the end of this, I can say, wow, he's a really great, great, great sermon. Great. But no, they'll say, God is amazing. And, uh, and yet I'm also aware that God uses my abilities, my gifts, my study, um, the way that I use language, all, all the things that he's given me. I don't just stand up there in a trance and God speaks through me like I'm a, you know, an amplifier. It's, it is me. Like I write the sermons and, but I do it with God with me. And I'm trying to do that and, and all forms of ministry, whether I'm, I'm listening to someone share their story or writing, which is a form of ministry. I mean, you know, a, a sign that I have in my, where I write in my office, where I write my books, I have a sign up above that says writing is an act of love. And I want to, I want to think about even writing a book that it is, I'm doing it as an act of love, that it's not to sell books or to make money or to have people I'm writing, uh, as a way of loving other people. Hopefully that's, that's what I hope for. And, and same with preaching or anything I do in ministry. 
So as we're getting toward the end of my questions anyway, is there something you'd like to say about the book that, that we haven't touched on so far? Well, I, you know, this was a hard book to write, and you know that, Jeff, because I, I, uh, I did not hesitate to call you <laughs> while I was writing the book. Uh, did, I did not hesitate to send you chapters and say, help me here. Uh, it's, it's such an important topic, and uh, I think it's one that we have a deep need to, to have answers about. I mean, we want to know, like, how do I make sense of the story of my life? Particularly if if any listener you know grew up in a family where there was abuse, neglect, um, brokenness, absence, uh, where parents were less than than wonderful, which I guess is everybody because we're human. But as you're piecing together the story of your life, I think that's my hope for the book is that people will begin to say, "Okay, God has planned this life for me." And maybe things have happened that I say, oh, I, I sure didn't want this to be a part of the story, but it is divorce and death and loss and losing a job. I mean, the things that people go through are so profound. And I think if, if the book helps people begin to see that God is, as you, I, I love how you put it, is woven into the tapestry of this story then that would be just wonderful for me. Well, that's, that's my prayer for the book too, Jim. It's, it's been wonderful today having you lead us deeper into the wisdom and helps of this book. Just for the record, um, I'm, I'm clearly biased, um, but I do give uh, The Good and Beautiful You a rating of outstanding. You know, and at one point in the book, you write what I believe is a truly wonderful and moving passage that I think makes a great benediction. So as we wrap up, I was wondering if you'd be willing to read the excerpt I sent you to, to bless your listeners. Would you please? Absolutely. I'd love to. I mean, I, I do like these words. I worked hard on them, so I'd be happy to read them. Here we go. You are no mere mortal. You are divinely designed, deeply loved, fully forgiven, fully alive, sacred person, with a sacred story of grace, a sacred body, and a holy longing for God. You were perfectly designed before the foundation of this world to do great works that give glory to God. And you are an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. You're one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and you will live forever in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. May you sing and dance with the joy of a child in the knowledge of God's unending love. Amen. Truly good and beautiful words. Thank you so Thank much, you. Jim. It's been really great speaking with you today. It's been great doing this, Jeff. I know when we talked about it, I thought, I don't know how this is going to go. I'm usually not, I mean, I'm on other people's podcasts, but to be on the Things Above podcast and be the one who's interviewed, uh, but you did a great job. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Hey folks, I want to let you know about a recent development here at Friends University where I teach. We have an undergraduate degree program in Christian spiritual formation, a Bachelor of Arts degree that's both a first and a second major. Now, I teach in this program, as well as some other amazing professors, and I am pleased to announce that Friends University is offering an amazing scholarship of up to $18,000 per year to students interested in studying Christian formation as a part of their college experience. In addition to this amazing scholarship, there'll be hands-on learning with ministry leaders, working with me and others, and great opportunities for internships. Again, this is for both a first major, those who plan on going into ministry, as well as those seeking it as a second major, meaning those who are going to become accountants or therapists or graphic designers or teachers or engineers, 
any number of other vocations, but they also want to grow in their spiritual lives while in college and get a pretty big scholarship to help pay for college. So if you know someone who would benefit from a degree like this, check out our website, apprenticeinstitute.org, and click on the Friends University tab. Again, apprenticeinstitute.org, and click on the Friends University tab. I hope you join me next time. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things Above podcast, you can do so on our website, apprenticeinstitute.org. Click the Donate Now button at the top of the page. It's really easy, and it would mean a lot to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above.